American Top 40. This is American Top 40. My name's Casey Kasem. Well, now we're up to the first hit by a group named for a character that appeared on the world's favorite science fiction TV show, Star Trek. This character turned up in a popular Star Trek episode called A Mock Time. Now, you talk about Trekkie trivia. Listen to this. Here's what happens. Mr. Spock is seized by a Vulcan mating drive. It makes him go mad. At warp speed, the Enterprise travels to his home, Planet Vulcan. You see, years before, Spock had been matched with a girl named T'Pring. And by Vulcan law, now as adults, the time has come to marry. When the Enterprise gets to Vulcan, they find T'Pring doesn't want to marry Spock. She tells him he has become a legend among their people, and she does not wish to marry a legend. She wishes to marry another Vulcan. But for Spock, to end the madness of the Vulcan mating drive, he must fight in combat to the death. T'Pring can choose any challenger she wants, and she picks Captain Kirk. You see, if Spock kills Kirk, he'll be overcome by the death of his friend, and he won't want T'Pring. And if Kirk kills Spock, he won't want her. As Spock says, highly logical. Anyway, all these rituals are presided over by the high priestess of Vulcan, an elder wise woman named Tipau. And how does this all fit into the countdown? Well, I thought you'd never ask. We've got a pop group named for that Vulcan high priestess. At number 34, with their first hit, Heart and Soul, here is Tipau. May you live long and prosper. Says, I kiss or cafe. Anatomy of a song. Power Decker. Heart and Soul by the Power. Something in the moonlight catches my eye. The shadow of a little ghost dancing by. Looking for a little bit of love to grow. So give me love, give me heart and soul. You never let me cross to the other side now. I'm tied to the hope that you will somehow. Heart on the heels of something. Welcome to Atisography, another anatomy of a song, a single I've always loved, Heart and Soul by Tapao. I'm really grateful to have had the chance to chat with Carol about this song, so let's just get straight to it. Must I beg you? This is the start of the interview. Okay, let's talk about Heart and Soul. So when I first emailed you about this, were you surprised I didn't ask about China in your hand? So I assume the most of the time you're talking about, when well, the UK at least is trying in your hand, in America it's heart and soul, right? It is. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised. 
surprised and relieved because Heart and Soul is a great song and it's personally um, my favourite. So, yeah, it's nice to talk about another hit, definitely. Okay, so start at the beginning then. So in terms of writing songs generally, when and why did you first start writing songs and what was was the initial process in that and how did it compare to the writing of Heart and Soul? I started writing songs kind of organically. I, I sort of, I was slow to get into the music business. I was 22 and I auditioned for a local band in Shropshire and decided to give it a shot. And then I've always been very musical. You know, uh, my dad was a really good pianist. My mum was a singer. There's a lot of music in the family. And although I can't play the piano very well, I can't sight read. I can play by ear quite well. You know, I can really figure things out quite quickly. And so when I got accepted by this local band, I quickly was just throwing melodies across some of the chord progressions, you know, and then thinking of something to say, you know, lyrically. And that could either be what I was called Moon June Spoon, which is it rhymes, or I started to quickly develop a style of sort of taking note of uh, topical issues, you know, and I, I would write about something I'd seen in the news or a TV show I'd watched, or I'd observe my friends, or people's behaviour and their reaction to things that they were going through. And I'd always really liked English at school. I was quite good at English, did English literature and language, and and I liked poetry and stuff. When I was little, I used to write really bad poems. So I think there was always lying dormant there, that sort of wanting to say something, you know. Some of it's dear diary, some of it's observations, and some of it just rhymes. It's, it's any which way, really. So how old were you when you first started writing songs then? What was that initial burst of creativity 22 with my first 22 yeah so um yeah and it came quite easily and I, I discovered that I was quite quite good at it you know and I enjoyed it do you remember the first song you wrote no <laughs> it might have been something horrible called nuclear weapon oh I like that nuclear weapon the lasers yeah I think I co-wrote that with the guitarist it was probably pretty crap do you remember any of the lyrics oh it was uh, a double entendre it went he's got a <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> was it about anybody you knew or was it like a fantasy yeah it was just a made up stupid song yeah right. okay so moving on to um heart and soul which you obviously like with all the power songs you wrote with ronnie ronnie rogers what was the very first initial spark of the idea where did it first come from okay so heart and soul was born out of having a new toy so songs come about lots of different ways and um my dad had lent us some money we had bought a new keyboard and it had a thing in it called a sequencer so that's where you know this is god the very sort of early 80s so this was state-of-the-art technology so you basically you can play some notes in a pattern and you program them into the keyboard and then they'll play in a loop so they'll just keep playing so ronnie was mucking about with this new keyboard might have been a jx3p rather than jx3p i think he was going like bum 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 you know it's just the bass line and um he just programmed that in and just played it played over and over and over just repeated itself basically and uh then i started going ba 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 da da i just play really bad keyboards but i was getting out this pad and and it started from there and then we realized it had a real nice groove to it and um we didn't have the rap vocal to start with. I had the singing vocal, the sort of more than an ocean keeps us apart.
as the song progressed and we were working with the producer, he said it needs something percussive. So we, we were trying percussion, you know, different things, filling in, filling in the gaps because it was quite laconic, the, the melody. And he said it needs like more words. And so I, I went away, you know, and just gave it some thought and came up with a counter vocal, which was the rap, my really bad attempt at rap. And it began to grow and we just knew it was really, really special, but it was born out of having a new toy to play with and Ronnie mocking around with it. So the baseline came first. So there's the Tapao demos that are out. So the 1985, that was when it was first demoed and written, I take it. It was 1985. And that's the version without the rap, yeah? Yes. Yes. So, yeah, it, it had a, a, an initial incarnation. Oh, right. Right. So when did the title Heart and Soul come into the equation? Was that pretty early on? And the lyrical content? Yeah, it was... Um, I was on holiday with my parents... And uh, Ronnie couldn't come. And we were very new in our relationship as well. So sort of missed each other chronically like you do when you're first involved, you know. So I was sat on the beach in Marbella being utterly miserable. (laughs) And I was going like, you know, more than an ocean keeps us. Looking at the ocean and sort of dreaming up this up. And then I sort of extrapolated it out from being how I felt about Ronnie to... I turned it into a massive unrequited love thing. That often happens with me. I'll start out from one position in my lyrics and then just take it somewhere else. I don't need to to that point if it's not working as well as I thought it would. So I turned it into a one person feels more strongly in a relationship than the other. And it's give a little bit of heart and soul. Give me a break here, you know. So it, it, you, you put some effort in. This is how I feel about you. You know, you put some effort in. You know, so that's that's where that came from. So how do the lyric take to write from start to finish? I would say I always get my initial burst quite quickly, and that's a matter of hours. And it's usually um, the structure is usually pretty sorted straight away. You know, I know what I want to do. But I think, I mean, this is a long time ago, don't forget. So by the time we'd finished working on the rap, that song probably took at least four months, I think, to get right, because we had the first carnation. Then we were working with this producer who was doing our demos and he said it needs more in it so I went away and I put more in it so it took a long time to get and then to to drop the rap lyrics in the gaps where the melody was was quite hard to do so that was a long process definitely And, and generally with lyric writing do you tend to refine the lyrics or do you tend to like have one burst of creativity and that's it or would you tend to go up and do drafts of lyrics a little bit of both I, I like I said I I do have um, an initial burst that usually is quite okay. And then you realise that one word is is maybe a little corny. You could think of a better word to describe that, be a little bit cleverer. So I will just keep looking at it. And I carry songs around in my head. I'm constantly writing in my head. And then all of a sudden I'll go, I know, and I'll go and find the lyrics and change a word or half a line or something. In fact, Ronnie and I recently rewrote a song which we knew had great parts to it. We put it out last year. It's called Guess Is Sorry Now. And we knew that the chords were great, but we just hadn't got the song right. And that's really hard to do. It's hard to unhear what you wrote. Do you know what I mean? And start again. That's really tough to do. So usually I'm really relieved when I feel I've got the <laughs> correct straight away.
So how has the writing process with Ronnie changed now to then the day? Is it, has it changed much at all? He's much, much more bossy. <laughs> yeah, he's he's my, the bossy one. Yeah, when he's my boyfriend, he just used to do everything I say. He's grumpy old man. You know, okay. Right. <laughs> do you like yeah. that change? Do you like a more assertive songwriting partner? It's like, no, I'm not getting my wares off and I don't like this. I don't mind if somebody comes up with something better. I'm not uh, kind of like, don't touch my stuff, you know. But um, Ronnie can, we we joke about each other, right? He says, I'm just, oh, that'll do. He says, I'm lazy. But sometimes I get a feel for something. I think, no, you've played it tonight. You know, it feels all right. And I call Ronnie Columbo because he's like, just one more thing. You know, there's only one thing that I'm not clear about. Actually, uh, there is one thing. One other thing. One more question, sir, about those sacks of gold. So, you know, we do clash from time to time, but it's really quite funny now. We're not a couple anymore. I can't really go at him like I used to. Yes, that's kind of what I was getting at. So, I I, like my manners. So, whereas before, but you could say to your partner, that shit, now you'll say, you can't say to your songwriting partner, that shit. You've got to use tact a bit more. I can't throw cups at him or anything. Oh, so annoying. How frustrating, eh? Okay, so talking about the writing process, how did Heart and Soul compare to your usual writing process? We say it's a typical song you wrote with Ronnie, or was this something different? Because listening to the album, you were a rock band, really, weren't you? Yeah. Because that's a rock album. But Heart and Soul, is, to me, is like power pop. Because, I mean, like, China in Your Hand is a rock ballad, yeah? Well, but Heart and Soul is like this pure pop song. It out on its own. I know. Ronnie and I are quite eclectic in our writing. And um, we didn't think that that was a problem. But it, it can be. And it was a problem back then in America. So they loved Heart and Soul. Nothing else like it on the album. So they didn't pick up on another thing. Right. Because another song didn't fit the same format that Heart and Soul did. Yeah. So, But over here in the UK... Uh, the British public were more accepting, you know, because we had hits of Valentine, I'll be with you, um, Heart and Soul. They were more accepting of our different styles across different songs. But yeah, I can't write to a formula. It just came out the way it came out. You know, it just it just happened, really. So did you ever, you say you didn't write to a formula, did you ever try to rewrite China in your hand? In all honesty, did you ever think, okay, that works so well, let's try and do something like that again? No, no, that, China in Your Hand was not written when we got our record deal. The, the songs that get us our, got us our record deal were Heart and Soul and Valentine. Now, Valentine was the big ace up our sleeve. Every time a producer heard it or a record company heard it, that was the one they sniffed around. They right. Valentine, they loved it. Yeah. So that was the big song. So when we were recording um, Bridge of Spies in the States with Roy Thomas Baker, uh, one track, just wasn't working. I can't remember what it was, but we're basically, you know, polishing a turd. It just, it, it just didn't. Sometimes songs don't move on from the demo the way you hope they would, and sometimes songs you lose the magic that the demo had. It's, mm-hmm. it's strange sometimes. Right? But anyway, so this one song it wasn't working, and we were a track short. And uh, Roy said, "Do you have any another song I can hear?" And Ronnie and I continued to write. You know, after we got our deal, we were still writing all the time. And I had a cassette literally in my bag or I think in my pocket actually and we'd done a, a really early version of piano vocal and again I've got pretty much I'd say 90% of the lyrics already done so just lots of crossings out and stuff and Roy heard it and said that's an amazing song so you know he produced Bohemian Rhapsody so that's his pedigree yes, yeah <laughs> you trust his opinion wouldn't you yeah, yeah. 
kind of the big thing it is, but that's why China works beautifully with just a piano and me or an acoustic guitar and me, because it was that's the way it was written, simply, very purely. It was a theme she had on a scheme he had told in a foreign land to take life on earth to the second birth and the man was in command It was a flight on the wings of a young girl's dreams that flew too far away And we could make the monster and so, no, apart from refining a few lyrics, didn't change a thing. The production just went, like, up a thousand percent through all That's the thing that changed. So that's like the movie version, isn't it, where you just whipped out, I've got this song in my back pocket and it happens to be the big, huge number one single. Literally, if that other song had been working, whatever it was, China wouldn't have been on that album. That's amazing. It would have been on the second album, probably, but it might not have been the same song. It's timing, isn't it? Yeah. So, so I hope you take it as a compliment, but the, the reprise at the end of the album... Of China in your hand reminds me of the the crossroads theme, wings <laughs> in the Venus and Mars. Oh right, yeah. Did, did you get that? That's meant as a compliment because I love I love I love wings. I love Paul McCartney's. So I love that album. So oh right, I thought you meant the awful television show Crossroads. You probably weren't born. <laughs> I was. I was. Yeah, I remember. I used to watch Crossroads when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> The, the guitar version oh, the I, I didn't know that comparison because I didn't um... well check it out next time have you ever listened to Venus and Mars the album maybe Roy had that in his head I didn't was it his idea to do a piece then was that his idea it was yeah yeah okay So talking about Roy, so how did you get involved with such a you know a prominent producer? And is it true that Nile Rogers is also interested in doing it as well? That is true, yeah. So when you get when we got our record deal, the record company will start putting you forward to the to the hot net and you have some sort of creative meetings. Who do you want to work with? Where do you see this going? And yeah, Niall was in the picture and I love Nile Rogers, I love Chic and all the things he's ever been involved in, but probably wasn't quite right for us. But I just to work with him would have been amazing. So anyway, Ronnie was a massive Queen fan. It's huge. And I was a massive fan of the latest Cars album that Roy produced. You know, that the song Drive that they used for yes. Five Days. I, I just made that album until he wore it out. You can't go on thinking nothing's wrong. Gonna 
so he was perfect. His older stuff, Ron loved all the pomp and ceremony, and I loved his latest contemporary stuff. It's only really modern to me, so he still had the chops, you know. Yeah, the right guy, you know. And what was it like working with him? Oh, he's he's mad, he's nuts. So um, obviously, you know, technology has changed a lot. But for example, we the studio we worked in was in a hotel, and it was a hotel court uh, that had been owned by Hugh Hefner. So it was this massive hotel, golf course, massive recording studio, and Hugh Hefner just sold it all. He got bored, you know. So the hotel, we're trying to make money by getting clients into the recording studio. So we got this amazingly kitted out state-of-the-art studio for a pretty good price, you know, because they just didn't know what to do with it, really. But the drums were in the conference centre. And so we had what you call tie lines, you know, where all the, the, the mics would get plugged into the wall and then those lines would go through to the control room and everything. And uh, we must have had 200 mics on the kit. <laughs> and all the ambient mics, because it was such a big room, Roy would mic up the, the room as well. And um, he'd have four different mics on the snare and just chop, you know, let me hear it on that, let me hear it on that, let me hear it on that, let me hear that. We had four different sets of speakers. So yeah, big ones, little ones. He'd have a tiny little pig nose amp, he'd put it through. He'd have the ones that it would sound like when it came through the radio. You know, so he's very extravagant, full of great ideas, but also let you run with your, your own as well. He wasn't dictatorial at all. You know, he had a lot of faith in me and Ronnie, and we had a lot of faith in him. So it was fantastic. And he had a wonderful engineer, Joey Napier, who'd been Neil Young's um, front of house engineer for years. So massive pedigree there. But by the second album, by the time we did Rage with Roy, Ronnie and I had learned a lot. And we were getting a bit more bossy. We didn't need him anymore because we, we could... We'd learn everything from him and probably didn't need second album. We could do it ourselves. So, for example, the single of China in Your Hand that went to number one for five weeks, that is a re-recording, and Ronnie and Tim, our drummer, produced it. Oh, really? So, yeah. So we couldn't edit the album version down to a single because we played it very organically and the drum tempo ebbs and flows a little. So you couldn't do straight edits. Because the lyrics are quite different, aren't they, on the album version? It, there's just a, 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 there's just an extra verse. An extra verse, okay. But when you want to get something on Radio 1 back in the 80s, it's like, please don't bore us, get to the chorus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Drop down to, to three minutes. So it just cuts straight into the chorus after the first verse. But, you know, I think it still sounds fine. But anyway, um, Ronnie and Tim Burgess, our drummer, we recorded at the workhouse in London and just completely did a sound alike and we'd learn everything we needed to know from Roy so we could make things sound the way he did it. That's that's amazing. The single version is a completely different version to the album version. It's not an edit of the album version. Completely recording, vocals, everything. Also, the, the sax break for my money is much better. So it's Gary Barnacle who's mm. playing that, that sax break on the single is iconic.
that's why I was thinking it. This sounds so different. I just assumed it was like a different mix or it was a different edit or. Uh, no, it was time. You you literally uh, there's very few you know there's very few records. There's Bohemian Rhapsody and Superman by Laurie Anderson where they're particularly unique and the radio will play them in their entirety. Most of us, you have to make that song three minutes long or it won't get fucking played and that's the end of it. So you have to make some cutthroat decisions on your work. And you can't really tell. Um, you know, Tim's not all over the place, but it, we were we recorded it live. It was live takes. It's very organic. It's beautiful. But we couldn't, we couldn't edit it. So I think you said, how long did the actual, once you were recording it properly then? So from the album version, start the album version to recreating it as a single version, what was the length of time between the two? I even remember probably three months. For three months? Yeah, probably three months because Heart and Soul was doing really well everywhere. And they said China's got to be the next single, but, you know, it's too long. And then that whole conversation I'm telling you about, you know, can't edit it, it's not going to work, blah, 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 blah. So we just went, book us into a studio, we'll re-record it. By which time we just, we were all, all knew what we were doing, so we were fine. And how long did Heart and Soul take to record? Um, I'm thinking a week, because when you work on an album, you know, um, you might start a track, do a lot of it, move on to the next one, and then Roy will say, okay, we're going to go back to Heart and Soul and do the guitars. You know, you don't do it all necessarily in steps. Um, so from memory, I think we did that. We we um, we laid down the drums for most of the tracks first with a guide vocal. Then we lay the bass. Then we work on the keys and the guitars. And you might move in and out of the different tracks. Also, depending on what mood you're in, what you fancy working on today, kids. You know, so it probably took, I would say, about a week, I think. And you tend to have the finished track before you put your vocals on, the final vocals. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So did you know for Heart and Soul, did you know when it was finished? Did you know exactly when you listened to that mix? Okay, we're done now. This is this is the finished version. Yeah, I've always had a lot of faith in Heart and Soul. I thought it was great, but you know, if you know your Power history, you know it got released in the UK and flopped. Yes. So it's only when it got re-released in the states that we got a reprieve, and the the label thought, "Well, let's let's re-release it." And it also got picked up by a very trendy jeans company called Pepe Jeans for their cinema campaign, and so we. Yeah, all of a sudden we had a little sprinkle of cool across the top of us and we got a second shot and it got re-released and went to number four back home and in lots of other European territories. It, it did really well. Yeah, I tried to find that ad. I couldn't find it anywhere. When was the last time you saw that ad? Back in the 80s. And funnily enough, I I, I went to look, it was a few years ago, I went on a deep dive on Pepe because a lot of companies, they have archive stuff now, don't they? But they, mm. they couldn't find it. It's a real shame they couldn't find it. No, there was an 80s one with a Smiths song on it, but not not that one. Yeah, I couldn't find it. That's what yeah. So going back to the first release of the single then, so was it always going to be the first single? Was there ever any debate about what the first single was going to be, or was it always Heart and Soul? Heart and Soul. Yeah, always. We had a strong feeling about it, definitely, and particularly America. You know, so we were signed to Siren in the UK, but our, our mother company was Virgin. When we weren't in the UK... Virgin was our label, our direct label, and they wanted it's called a simultaneous release, you know, mm. simultaneous worldwide release. <laughs> um, Virgin Worldwide wanted Heart and Soul, so yeah. So when the single came out in the UK, and I think it got to around ninety eight or something, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. So when that happened, what what were you thinking then? Were you thinking we're screwed? Are you thinking we've got China in our, your hand in in reverse? We've got in our back pocket to bring out as a second single, or we we thought we were screwed because David Bettridge, who was our MD, he didn't like the mixes, and I remember listening to the record, and it was obviously a vinyl album. It kept sounding distorted 
through my stereo and I was thinking, what's wrong with my stereo? But it sounded distorted. It sounded really weird. And David Betteridge just went ape and just said, this sounds fucking awful. You know, you can't listen to it. And now I'm not the most technical person in the world, so I hope I don't get this wrong, but Roy knew about putting on certain compression on the record that made it sound amazing on American MOR radio. Uh, right, yeah, but well, the FM radio is better quality in America at the time. Yeah, yeah it, on the radio, it sounds phenomenal. And it sounds okay now. It's gone on to become, you know, gone to CDs and downloads and stuff. But that initial pressing of vinyl, it sounded fucking weird. And I was thinking, something wrong with my stereo, the record, my ears, you know. And so when it flopped on the first release, David Betteridge went, see, told you, you know. And record companies are pretty cutthroat. If you're not making money for them, mm. they, they dump you. Did it get much radio airplay the first time it was released? Do you remember? I'm going to say, uh, I don't remember. Do you know what? I'm going, I'm going to say no, which is partly why it was a flop. If you got a lot of radio play, it wouldn't have been a flop. So, yeah, I don't think anyone was particularly bothered about it. Okay, so it wasn't a hit the first time in the UK. Then you start, when are you first starting to hear that it was getting some traction in America and it was becoming a hit then? Oh, gosh, I, I can't remember it. It would have been. It wasn't one moment, it's like, something's happening here. And it's like, oh, wow. So we've gone from this kind of failure in the UK to suddenly something happening in America. Like a month or something. It was not a long, long time, but a few weeks, you know, and then the good news came in. And they sent Ronnie and I over to support it at radio. So we basically flew around America going to all the big radio stations and you you grin and grip, you know, the, the DJs and um, you know, do interviews for them and they're fascinated because you're from England Shire, you know. <laughs> and then Casey Kaysen picked up on it. So Casey, oh, Casey Kaysen. um top 40. He always had a Christmas jumper on, no matter what time of the year. <laughs> yeah. And um, he loved it. And he was going, so this band are from Shropshire Shire in oh. England. <laughs> and they thought we were really quaint, you know. These are Billboard's 100 Biggest Songs of 1987. Number 33. This song became the first hit for the four-man, one-woman band from England, T'Pau, who got their name from a character on the TV show Star Trek in the episode called Amok Time. T'Pau was the name of the high priestess on Mr. Spock's home planet, Vulcan. Any of you Trekkies remember? Well, T'Pau's song lived long and prospered on the chart, coming in at number 33 for the year, Heart and Soul. The hits from coast to coast. So you've got a little story, you're of interest, the Brits are coming again, you know, that, again, that kind of thing going on. Yeah, so Ronnie and I did a, a radio press junket for probably two weeks, just dashing around, going to all the big stations, and then they brought us over to start touring. Okay, so going back to the actual promotion of the single, so were you involved, generally speaking, in, in single choices and like 12-inch mixes and single sleeves and that kind of stuff. Were you involved in that side of things? Or was it just like a company's marketing division, you left it to them? Well, the, the singles, yes, although, and the covers, yes. Everything's run by you for your approval. But we did have some arguments with the record company. For example, Sex Talk got released as Intimate Strangers because Radio 1 wouldn't play a song with sex in it. So even in the UK? Yeah. So, oh, really? Yeah. We got talked out of a couple of things that just irritated me, but you get really persuaded, you'll jeopardize your chances at the station, you know. So, and I was like, okay, fuck it, whatever. 
but sex talk was much more punchy than intimate strangers, in my opinion. But yeah, definitely. I think when um, sexual healing came out, didn't on Radio One they called it healing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Doesn't quite work as well, does it? No, no. So yeah, so that was fine, and and I got to approve the covers and stuff like that. But twelve inch mixes and obscure dance mixes, not really, you know. And you I didn't have to sign off on them because there's, there's a hell of a lot of mixes on the Bridge of Spies um, expanded edition. I didn't get to sign off on them. Well, I think they were sent to me to listen to, and I just wasn't that interested in them. But everybody was doing them. They were considered necessary, you know, so it was and that so I think, well if people like that, that's fine, it's not my bag. Mixes of anybody's stuff that I like. I'm just like, leave it the fuck alone, you know. Because <laughs> there's a US single mix on the uh, on the expanded album that um, sounds completely different and just like, yeah, it's nowhere near as good as the the, um, no. the proper version. I just wonder if like you did you know about that? Were you aware there was a different version? Was that played on the radio instead of your version? No, it wouldn't have been played on the radio. It would have been a dance mix, you know. Okay, all right. Yeah, I knew I knew about them, you know, and I was told, no, you know, trust us, this will get played here and there. It's not a chart thing, but it just supports the record in, in the clubs and stuff. But I wasn't particularly interested in them, I have to say. Okay, so making the video, notice there's three directors on the video. Yeah. How, how is that being directed by three directors? And, and how, is it, how is it generally making videos? Do you enjoy them? Are they a bit of a chore? No, the first directors were, they were a couple. It was Andrea and you remind, you have to remind me, actually, I can't remember. Well, it's credited on, on IMDb as Vaughan Arnell, Anthea Benton and Jenny Brown. Yeah, so they directed the first video. They were just a, a collective of creative people. And I love the first, there's the original version of Heart and Soul and it's the official video. So, again, the Americans love to be hands-on and they'll change they changed things just for the sake of it because they wanted to be all over it and claim the credit for it. So there's two versions of Heart and Soul. So the first one that Vaughan and Anthea directed, and I don't remember Jane. If you look at it, it's really funny because all the boys are left-handed because the film got flipped. So they're oh. all- <laughs> And then Why? the official video, that's got an edit on the front of some, you'll see some wavy dancing shadows of the boy girl dancing and all their shadows go. So the Americans did that. They edited that in and they changed the video to suit what they thought was the American market. Personally prefer what is listed up on YouTube or Vivo or whatever as the original video. It's my favourite. So um, Top of the Pops, how was that an, as an experience? Did you have any, any good um, backstage encounters with any other pop stars? My main takeaway from Top of the Pops was um, obviously it had been going forever. And it was pretty much the, the only show, wasn't it? There, there were a few, you know, and I... Now, here's a song that was originally released in January in this country, didn't become a hit, but did go to number four in the States. This week, a chart entry at 28. It is Tapau, Heart and Soul. And um, the biggest thing for me was just being on such an iconic programme 
and you know it was a lot of hard work very very long days it'd have you even at 9am and you would you would rehearse and rehearse and then it was um live from seven I think wasn't it on Thursday yeah and you didn't get to see that much of the other artists because that was in the old days the BBC White City it's a really big building it's circular so everybody's dressing rooms were off down corridors and you were all brought to and from the studio floor at different times and stuff but a couple of good anecdotes was I, I met Paul and Linda McCartney who they kept staring at me when I was rehearsing and uh, then they came up and said sorry we didn't mean to intimidate you just remind us of our little girl Stella you know because she's oh yeah <laughs> and um Paul said do you want a cup of tea you know I said yeah sure so we went and sat down and Paul went and got ghastly tea and polystyrene cups and and he's such um such an amazingly normal person he really is and Linda, bless her heart, you know, she's really nice. Or she was really nice. And we stayed friendly for a while. And um, Linda would send me calendars at Christmas, you know, with her photography in, which was lovely. Lovely. Uh, when you're a hot ticket and you're on all the big shows and Princess Trusts and galas and shit like that, you're you're just in the same hemisphere as these people. So you get to see each other quite a lot. And we were really quite friendly. And also, by co- complete coincidence, our management PA, who's still one of my oldest friends, she was Mary McCartney's you know, Bessie mate. So there was a big kind of McCartney thing going on. So I was kind of quite friendly with them for a while. It's just I don't get to see them anymore, you know. Um, yeah. They were lovely people. And um, another time was funny. The Bee Gees were on and they turned up with all this these massive security guys. And Top of the Pops. Yeah, nobody else was allowed near them. We were all artists and you weren't allowed in the fucking building if you didn't have security clearance and relevance. And everything. Yeah. But they had all these, uh, these massive security guys who are American and... Uh, they were lovely. So, you know, they'd go, hey, how you doing? Looking cool. Beaches. And they'd just like gently move you out of the way. You know, hey, <laughs> how you doing? Great to see you. I heard your sound check. You sound great. Bee Gees coming through. You know? <laughs> that was funny to watch. Because although the Bee Gees are Brits, they acted very American. A lot of men. They have the entourage, they have the security. And even though you're a fellow artist, you're of no interest or consequence to them whatsoever. Yeah, it's a different way of doing things over there, isn't it? Okay, so... um. When it was a massive hit, I mean, do you remember the moment when it, it broke into the charts and you heard that it, it was top 40 or it was top 10 or it got to number four? Was there one moment it was like, wow, a wow moment in terms of its success? Because it was a slow climb up the American charts and a slow climb up the British charts. China in Your Hand went 43-19-5-1. So I remember that <laughs> impact. But with Heart and Soul, it was still a slow and steady climb after that initial, you know, disaster. So, no, I don't remember. I just remember it was getting there. And the next thing, you're number four in the Billboard chart, get your ass over to America and start touring, you know, so that was great. And what has your relationship to the song been like over the years? I mean, have you ever got sick of singing it? Do you ever, like, I don't know, has it changed? Has your relationship to the song changed? Only in as much as I perform it now, I probably do the rap slightly different and I muck about with it because I can, because it's mine, but I don't change it too much because people want to hear it the way they remember it, I think, but I'm kind of more at ease with how I deliver it and stuff, you know, and um, always make sure, you know, I've got the boys on BVs or I have a great backing vocalist to help me do the high bits. So all the sounds, I don't have it on track. I don't have anything on track for heart and soul and other songs subsequently down the years I have, I've got some percussion backing vocals and a bit of pizzazz on track and we play mm. that which bolsters the song live everybody does that now but you know i'm still singing live obviously so with heart and soul it probably 
it probably would benefit, I think, technically from a little bit of stuff on track to lock it into how it used to sound. And funnily enough, when I do a playback show, which I did at the weekend, so that's not with the band, you know, that's that's like taped backing. I take a backing vocalist with me and it's all on playback. It's great hearing the original parts and the backing vocals and stuff. I, re- I really enjoy that. So I, I've been thinking of using it a little for the band shows as well. Okay. Ace's Ography, Quick Fire Mound. Heart and Soul comes on the radio. Do you turn up, turn off or ignore? Turn it up. Turn up every time. I love that. That's a brilliant answer. Weirdest place you've ever heard the song? Ooh, um, in no, in an elevator. Yeah, an elevator version, or was it your version? Yeah, elevator version in Germany. It was sort of going. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant! Yeah, is that your "We've Made It" moment? Exactly. You think first yeah. when you think, "Oh my god, that is so shit," then you think, "No." <laughs> elevated music that's a good thing you've made it yes most surprising person to come up to you and say they love the song uh debbie harry oh that's cool we were in atlanta doing uh some radio work she was there she had something out and she went hey carol cool tune <laughs> oh excellent Wonderful. i just fainted you know fainted clean away this might be the answer that might be the answer to the next question actually who would you most like to cover the song if anyone could cover it who would you choose harry. Debbie Harry. <laughs> Debbie Harry, I say that well. Uh, your favorite single memory related to the song? First Top of the Pops. Definitely. First Top of the Pops. I felt I'd finally made it. It had been a long slog. You know, we were years and years trying to get a deal. We lived in Shropshire. There was no YouTube, internet, MySpace, you know, whatever. You just had to slog away. And um, this was the early 80s. We were in a, a rural county. You know, you had to try and get some attention from Wolverhampton, then Birmingham, then make your way to London, start, you know, always up and down the M1. So after all that hard work and getting told by some people, actually some people saying, do you know the, the chances of you making it are, you know, it's like, what's that bloody thing? The chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one, they said. So the chances of me making it were like a million to one, you know. I'm like, uh-huh, okay, yeah. And then, you know, the girl that bullied you at school, the maths teacher that humiliated you, all those fucking bitches. When yeah. I did my first top of the pops, I looked straight down the camera and went, say, fuck you, yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. Three words to describe how you feel about heart and soul. Uh, proud, grateful, and happy. Excellent. I got, I got to ask, is it true that you were originally offered the role of um, Don Johnson's wife on Miami Vice? Yes, that is true. Had you done any, I know you've done acting since, but had you done any acting up to that point for them to think she'd yeah. be a good actor in that? To act. I don't know if you saw it, because Sheena Easton took the part, because I, I was contracted <sighs> to tour with Brian Adams, so I couldn't step out of the tour. So you would have done it? Yeah, but it was, it was you know, pretty corny stuff it was easy to do i get cases all the time where i'm out half the night okay sometimes all night fine sometimes i have to work all night in the studio i'm not afraid of work i've got a kid what flavor so here's a little little anecdote for you so about oh i don't know 10 years ago i think he was starring in guys and dolls in the west end and my friend had tickets and backstage new people on the production i just thought oh, my God, I'm going to go and meet him and tell him I was nearly his wife, you know. So <laughs> backstage, but again, because he's American, he had security and we were kind of funneled into a queue to wait our turn. And so I said, Don, listen, you, you don't know who I am. 
I have this band to power. We had this massive hit in the 80s called Heart and Soul. And when you were in Miami Vice, I was offered the part of playing your your wife in that episode. But because I had to go on tour with Brian Adams, I couldn't do it. So Sheena Easton took the part. But now look, I get to meet you. And he just looked at me and went, that's nice, dear. <laughs> and then I was moved along by his massive security person. Do you reckon he didn't believe you? So who is this strange woman just saying these random things to me? Yeah, can, can you get her out of here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just me saying, I'm your wife. Yeah, like, how dare you? Ex-wife now. Get her out of here. <laughs> he didn't give a fuck. Yeah. Did you know what is going to be in the episode of Black Mirror, the song? Uh, yes, I did. Because my I because I wrote the song, my publisher always has to ask me and Ronnie for permission. Is there anything you've ever not given permission for, for one of your songs? No. No. I've never been approached with anything that was horrible and, frankly, I need the money. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. That is, it's a great episode. It is. And I love Charlie Brooker. And, yeah. you know, I, he's just super cool. The things he writes are amazing. So I was really flattered to get hooked up with that. I was forty-nine. Years. You can't begin to imagine. You can't know the bond, the commitment, the boredom, the yearning, the laughter, the love of it, the fucking love. You just cannot know everything we sacrificed. The years I gave him, the years he gave me. Did you think to ask? And it's one of those few episodes of the happy ending as well. So it's nice to have your song in something that's kind of less dystopian and depressing. I know, I know, yeah. There's lots of reaction videos. I don't know if you watched, and actually you reacted to one. I think you um, on Twitter you, you posted a reaction to one. My daughter brought it to my attention. Yeah, there's so many and they all love the song. That must be quite gratifying. They're all American. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is, it is. It's really gratifying to have it considered so cool and especially when it's for young kids I'm, I'm really flattered by that you know where did she come from <laughs> that was a cool song oh my gosh <sighs> see this is what I need you guys for you open my eyes up to different things I never heard of this group before and I just think they're so great I could tell that I'm looking at the music video and I can see that this is 80 by the fashion and stuff like that in the video itself Wow. Oh, I'm excited. This was going to my phone. <laughs> okay, I think I think that covers it. I think if anything else you want to say about Heart and Soul that's not being covered, do you want to cover? Because it's your chance to say. Just to say that no disrespect to China in your hand and how everybody loves it. You know, that's the gift that keeps on giving. And I really appreciate any support. The music business is a fickle business. And this is my 35th year, you know, which inspires me yeah. 35 years ago. So... I'm so grateful, but as a songwriter, I'm most proud of Heart and Soul because of the two vocals. That was a really tricky thing to do. And massive kudos to, to Roy Thomas Baker and Jerry Napier for getting that mix just right so you can bizarrely hear two different vocals at the same time. So I just think it's it's a clever song. I think it still sounds really fucking cool when you hear it on the radio. And it's a, it's a joy to perform and it's so uplifting. And as soon as the crowd hear the opening festivals, they just go crazy for it, like they do for China. So, so yeah, so I, I, Heart and Soul is my favourite, if I'm honest. That is the end of the interview.
thanks to Carol for the interview. And I, I do like a woman that swears. I don't know, it's a personal thing, but I do like that. And it's a very entertaining interview. And the kids you hear on the intro, um, two of them have been major league PITAs during the interview. And I had to go out to them a couple of times. And I'm not sure if that annoyed Carol or not. But she did say pretty soon after that that she had to go and pick her son up. And I hope that was genuine. I hope she wasn't offended um, or annoyed. Because I did enjoy speaking to her. Heart and Soul, such a great single. Uh, so again, many thanks to Carol for the chat. Another experience with Macca. Shout out to my McCartney collection episode. Yeah. Reminder, if you'd like to help with costs and, and keep this pod running and ad-free, PayPal donations are more than gratefully received at 80sography at gmail.com. And as I said in the last episode, for the people who've already donated, thank you very much. And, and if you'd like a shout-out, please contact me for approval and, and please give your three eternal jukebox choices and your three words that describe the 80s to you. So yes. And also for anyone who wants to donate at this point, and that again is at 80sography at gmail.com. Uh, as an example, we've got a couple more here. We have uh, Stephen Cohen from New York. Very generous donation. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, here's three songs. Is Eternal Jukebox Choices. I'll take it away. McCartney. Great track. Enough. Simply Red from A New Flame. I knew the album. Didn't remember that track until uh, I replayed it. Star Council. Now, what Star Council track do you think Stephen chose? No, not that one. No, not that one. Or that one. Or that one. No, Come to Milton Keynes. Interesting choice. Very interesting choice. Take it away. And his uh, three words to describe his eight is individualistic, maturing, and enlightening. Cannot disagree with those. Uh, so, thanks. And also, Christopher Hood, currently based in Wales. Please correct me if I'm wrong with that, Christopher. Very impressive academic resume relating to Japanese studies. Uh, through his website. He's currently writing a book about Frankie Goes to Hollywood fans. So, uh, so Christopher, um, when you finish that, get an ad, an ad to me, and I'm, I'm happy to put that in a future episode to help promote it. And unsurprisingly, he has three Frankie choices as his Eternal Jukebox. And this is pleasing, three 12-inch mixes. And you cannot have an 80s based Eternal Jukebox without some 12-inch mixes. So so, so we have uh, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, Pleasure Fix mix, Relax New York mix, and the Two Tribes Annihilation mix. All great choices. Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. And his three words to describe the 80s are discovery, music, and spectrum, as in ZX Spectrum. I had one of those as well. I remember the Ghostbusters game, where you had to um, uh, build your own franchise. Uh, all the fun we had in the 80s as kids. Yeah. So thank you, guys. And again, get yours through as well. It's just uh, more the merrier. I've uh, been checking out the To Power Back catalogue. I chanced across this song from their second album, Rage, called Island. I, I'm playing it because the nearest thing, I think, to the heart and soul template, where you've got the spoken and sung verse. And there was a remix version actually co-produced by former guest Gary Langham, but I'll play the original because it has more of that spoken aspect to it. So until next time, upwards and onwards, through any and every storm of adversity. Ta-ta. Mm.
It's tough with the pop still an important show to do. For me, it's still the most prestigious, even though possibly the building itself um, is quite run down compared to other studios and the back of the scenes side of the BBC isn't as glamorous as I thought it was going to be mm. but Top of the Pops is always my favourite because it's Top of the Pops. Oh, what a great vocalist. Yeah, she's moving. So you still hear the layers. Wow. You see, you hear it. Wow. This thing. Oh my God, this thing is amazing. It's coming at God. This thing is so good on the ears. Um, it's 80s, so yeah, it sounds great. Okay, well, thank you, Carol. Thank you for speaking to us. That is brilliant. So welcome. So my my son is at working as a waiter in a cocktail. <laughs> but no, nine. He finishes at nine. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we better get to it then. I hope I hope he lives close. Now to the politics of life. Yeah. <laughs>